Who is uh, Rabbi David Kalb? Uh, Rabbi Kalb, who is seated right there, uh, is the rabbi of the Jewish Learning Center of New York, where he's responsible for the creative, educational, spiritual, and programmatic direction of the organization. Uh, I assume you'll tell us a little bit about what the organization is at some point during your, your visit here. He also serves as a teacher and guide to students who are pursuing conversion. Remember, we will focus on something that David is working on that is incredibly controversial and exciting um, in America and particularly in Israel. Uh, and I hope you will join us to learn about that on Tuesday night. Additionally, Rabbi Kalb is an associate faculty member of CLAL, the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership, and a senior rabbinic fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute. Rabbi Kalb was on the Educational Advisory, Advisory Board of WNET, BBC documentary, The Story of the Jews. Before becoming the rabbi of the Jewish Learning Center of New York, he was director of learning and innovation at Central Synagogue, uh, which is in New York City, where he was the first Orthodox rabbi to serve in a senior level position in a major reform congregation. Previous to Central Synagogue, Rabbi Kalb served as the director of Jewish education at the 92nd Street Y. He has lectured at many different institutions, including the General Assembly of the Jewish Federations of North America, the Everett Jewish Life Center of Chautauqua, uh, New York, the Wexner Alumni of Metro North New Jersey, the Skirball Center. Oh my gosh, it just goes on. So you, you've, you've probably seen this material. His articles have appeared in the Huffington Post, Haaretz, Haaretz, Jerusalem Post, New York Jewish Week, JTA, and Jerusalem Report. Rabbi Kalb received his BA through the joint program between Columbia University and the Jewish Theological Seminary and rabbinic ordination from Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, Rosh, Rosh HaYeshiva of Yeshivat HaMivtar in Efrat. Please join me in welcoming Rabbi David Kalb to Orange County for your first visit ever, right? Yes, Rabbi Kalb. <laughs> Topic for today, Joseph, Beyond the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And let's, everybody should have a handout, right? Thank you very much. Um, I just want to thank Ari in general for making all the arrangements and doing everything necessary to bring me here. Um, I understand his wife is a kind of a Baal Tefillah. Uh, not kind of. Is the Baal Tefillah. Okay, fine. He used the phrase kind of. And, you know, he's a husband, so you can say that, I guess. What does that make me? I don't like um, of, um, of this synagogue, and it, it made me think about something. Um, actually, you know, when I was growing up, um, I didn't want to be a rabbi. I wanted to be... Um, a chazan. I wanted to be a cantor. So my father uh, brought me to see the uh, greatest cantor of the day, the famous blind chazan, the famous blind cantor. So I came in to his office and I sang a portion from uh, the high holiday service. And after I was done, he came over to me, he put his arm around me, and he said, my boy, in all these years I've been blind, it's the first time I ever wished I was deaf. <laughs> so... Uh, so um, so I became a rabbi, and I've, I've never looked back, because it's not a hard job. You just have to say, page 254, please rise. I don't really know why they send you to rabbinical school for all those years, but uh, whatever. Okay, with that, not that it really introduces our topic at all, uh, um, let's take a look at uh, um, the source sheet. We're on page one, uh, source one, uh, Genesis 37 line three. So um, we're going to be talking about the story of, um, of Yosef, of Joseph. Um, there's a specific issue in the story that we're going to talk about tonight. But before we do that, I just want to make sure everyone 
Does everyone have a general idea of the story? People have seen the play, know the story. Is there, is there anyone out there who just doesn't know the story that we need to summarize it, or, or are we good without summarizing? That's my question to everyone. It's out there. Okay, we got it. All right, great. So we're, we're going to look at one specific piece that sets up the story of Yosef itself, even though everyone seems to know it, which is good. But it's good just to look at this early um, piece that kind of introduces the trajectory of Joseph in many ways. Would someone like to read for us where it says, and Yisrael? Would anyone like to read for us that, that line? Anyone? Go ahead. Thank you. Nice and loud. Right, so this line really sets up the dynamic between the brothers and Yosef. Um, there's jealousy uh, between the brothers and Yosef, and that jealousy turns into hatred. Now, why is it that the brothers are jealous and hate Yosef so much? Well, one answer is given in um, this line. Yosef is referred to as... Benzikunim, right, in, re in reference to Yisrael, Yaakov, to Jacob, his father. He's considered a um, child of Yaakov, of Jacob's old age, right? Um, <coughs> he is essentially a child who functions more as a grandchild to Jacob. Jacob treats him more like a grandchild than the way he would treat a child. And it's very different being a grandparent versus being a parent. I know we're very close to Disneyland, so you'll appreciate this example. There was this commercial I saw, I don't know if it was for Disneyland or Disney World, but it doesn't really make a difference. And there are these um, grandparents picking up their grandchildren from the parents, right? to take them on a nice day in Disneyland. And the parents say to the grandparents, now listen, don't spoil them too much. You know, don't, don't spoil them. And they're like, no, we're, we're not going to spoil them. And then later you see them running around Disneyland doing whatever they're doing. And then you see the, the son, the grandson, looking at one of these Mickey Mouse dolls about this big. And the grandfather comes over to him and says, oh, you don't want this one. You want this one. You know, and, so, and they show like one of these giant Mickey Mouse dolls that you can't envision anybody buying. But that's the experience of being a grandparent versus being a parent. It's all the fun and none of the responsibility. Like there's a saying in my family, the only value in being a parent is eventually becoming a grandparent, right? And I see that difference with my mother. Like, you know, my kids run into her home and they're jumping all over furniture, they're running into the living room. I never understood why they called the living room the living room when I was a kid, because no one lived there, you know, in any way. You weren't even allowed in. And I'm trying to stop my kids from doing whatever they're doing. And my mother goes, no, no, let them play, let them play. And I say, look, I don't know who you are, lady, but what did you do with my mother? You, you know, you're not the woman I grew up with. You're trying to get into heaven now. So that's the difference between being a grandparent and being a parent. And Yaakov is a parent who's acting like a grandparent. And the reason is, is because he had this child at a much younger age. What's, I'm sorry, at a much older age. What's more is, 
He's also, she, he's also Yosef, is the child of his more loved wife. He has two wives. Right? One is Rachel, one is Leah. And he doesn't really love Leah. He loves Rachel. So Yosef is only, is only one of two children, Yosef, Joseph, and Binyamin, Benjamin, so coming from that more loved wife. So that gives him a more prominent place in his heart as well. Now, he does something to demonstrate this love he has for his son. What does he give him? A coat, right, that's the, con that's the regular translation. It's um, in Hebrew, the katonet pasim. I'm not really sure katonet pasim means coat of many colors. It means it was like a, a nice coat. I, I taught this class a number of years ago. It's definitely striped. We don't necessarily know if it's, if, it's, if it's colored, though, but it's definitely striped. But the real meaning beyond the literal meaning of katonet pasim is that it's a better coat than the brother's coat. I taught this class a number of years ago at the um, Samuel Bronfman Foundation, which is a very important charitable organization in New York, and it's um, run um, by a man who died a number of years ago, um, Edgar Bronfman. He was a very wealthy man, a billionaire, and he owned Seagram's Liquor for a number of years. So um, I was teaching this class, and I was trying to explain to Mr. Um, Bronfman what the Katonit Pasim means, and I said to him, and I don't know what was running through my mind, being that he's a billionaire, when I said this, I said to him, you know, it was a really nice coat, it was like a London fog. <laughs> he looks at me like I'm on drugs, and he says, a London fog is a nice coat? And I said, well, we all can't be at Gabronfman, you know? And then I go to him, a Burberry. He goes, now, now that's a nice coat, that's a nice coat. So you get the drift. It's a much nicer coat. And by, by giving this nicer coat to Yosef, he's making a statement of favoritism, of loving this son more than the other son. So that's the setup that we have here. Let's just hold off on questions, and let's maybe get a little bit more further. I'm happy to take questions at the end. No, no, it's not question. Well, let's still just hold off a little bit, because I want to make sure we stay on a trajectory. But I really want to hear what you have to say a little bit later on. OK. Two, source two, now Yosef could not bear. Oh, this happens later on, just a little bit of an introduction here. Later on, Yosef gets sold into slavery, but then somehow he becomes the viceroy of Egypt, and he has all these interesting interactions with the brothers who are coming down now because there's a famine in the land of Canaan. And they want to get food from him, and he's in charge of, of distributing the food. Now, they don't know who he is, but they know who he knows who they are. And um, he eventually reveals himself to his brothers. But there's a whole back and forth before he reveals himself. But this is the moment where he actually reveals himself to the brothers. And this is perhaps the most emotional moment, I would think, in the entire Torah, in my opinion. Someone read for us where it says, now Yosef could not bear. Who'd like to read? Please do. Now Yosef could not bear all those standing beside him, and he called out, take everyone away from me. So no one stood with him when Yosef made himself known to his brothers. And he wept. All right, so let's hold up there for a second. So um, why is it that Yosef wants no one around 
when he's going to reveal himself to the brothers. What, why is he concerned having other people around? Thoughts? Anyone want to try and answer it? So he's maybe concerned about what? What are you trying to say out what you're trying to say? Secular versus his own religion. Right, so maybe he doesn't want to like heighten the fact that he's Jewish and let maybe not everyone knew that he was Jewish. Maybe even if people knew it, he didn't want it out there, you know, being reinforced in their mind. Maybe, you know, he has reasons for not wanting that known. Any other so thoughts? The second sentence. Okay, let's hold let's let's go to the second sentence. Who'd like to read line two? Who would lead Ryan line two? You want to read it, David? Okay. So I don't really know this for a fact, but my gut tells me you should read it in English. Okay. And he wept out loud, so the Egyptians heard, and the house of Pharaoh heard. So David was right to highlight this pasuk, this line, because what's clear is, is that even though he tries to hide who he is, it's to no avail because they all ultimately know, presumably because it's such an emotional and impactful moment. Good point, David. That's what you're trying to make? Good. Yes. Line three. Who would like to read line three? And Yosef said, now this is the real zinger. Watch it carefully. Who's going to read? And Yosef said, go ahead. So he reveals himself. He says, Ani Yosef, right? Ha'od Avichai. Is my father still alive? Now, what's strange, what's strange about the first question that he asks of the brothers? What's strange about that question? Is there anything illogical about the fact that he's asking about their father, Yaakov, their father, Jacob? Go ahead. What do you think? Very good. Let's, get, let's skip ahead, just for the benefit of everyone else. I'm glad you know the material. But let's just take a, a look ahead, right? And look at source 5 and 6 on page 3, right? Four. I think we're off one page. Just oh, really? Your page go, go one more than your page. Okay, fine. Sorry about that. I didn't realize why that is. All right, so on page 4, do you see source 5 and 6? Yep. Okay, good. So I'll just read it. Right here, unsolicited unsolicited, the brothers not knowing that the viceroy in reality is Yosef, what did they say to him? And they said, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is gone. So clearly they indicate to him that the father is alive. Source 6, Genesis chapter 43, line 27 to 28, he inquired after their welfare, and he said to them, Is your elderly father whom you mentioned well, is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well, and he is still alive. So clearly, he knows that he's alive. But there's something more significant that's going on here. Take a look at source three. That's on page one. Two. Page two. Okay. So... There we have an interesting commentary by Rashi, right, on Genesis 37, 34. On the words, Yamim Rabim, many days, 22 years from the time he, Yosef, left him until Jacob went down to Egypt. So they were separated for 22 years. 
Now, part of that period, he was a slave in Egypt. However, part of that time, right, he was the viceroy of Egypt. Now, look at the next page, source four. I've done some very careful biblical calculations. You can tell me how I did. How long was Joseph the viceroy of Egypt when he reveals himself to the brothers? Genesis 41, 29 to 30, Pharaoh dreams of seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Genesis 41, 40, Yosef becomes viceroy at the beginning of the seven years of plenty. Genesis 45, 11, the second time the brothers come to Yosef, there will be five more years of the seven years of famine. Therefore, Yosef has been the viceroy for the entire seven years of plenty and two of the seven years of famine. This equals nine years total that Yosef was the viceroy of Egypt. Now, what's significant about this? That means Yosef has nine years of the best communication available to him in the entire world, right? And the best transportation available to him in the entire world. And yet, what does he not do? He doesn't call the father. He doesn't go down to Canaan to say, hey, I'm alive, right? Are you alive? And yet here, when he finally reveals himself to the brothers, right, he says, is my father still alive, right? It's kind of strange. Now, can anyone think of a reason why maybe Yosef wasn't interested in finding the father? What possible reason might Yosef not be interested in any way, shape, or form to visit his father, to find out about his father, to not care about his father at all? Maybe Theories? He, maybe he thought that his father didn't try to find him. But didn't find him, but what else? Make it a little stronger even. Yeah? Well, his father sent him on the, the trip to go find the brothers, and that's where he wound up in the trouble. He could have thought that his father was kind of involved. In right. i got to give you a high five on that. we got a ringer in here. Fantastic. Yeah. That's exactly it. Take a look at source 7, Genesis 37, 11 to 14. Right? So his brothers envied him, but his father awaited the matter. And his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. And Yisrael, that's Jacob, said to Yosef, Are your brothers not pasturing in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, and I love this phrase here. What does he say? Hineni. And it's reminiscent, of course, of what? Here I am. What is it reminiscent of? Of what? Abraham. Yitzchak. To Abraham. Of the Akedat Yitzchak. And like you feel, whoa, Yosef's already in trouble. As, as, as soon as you hear the words, here I am, Hineni, you know he's already in trouble. Right. Line 14. So he said to him, go now and see to your brother's welfare and the welfare of the flocks and bring me back the word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. The point is, I think y y Yosef could easily conclude, my father set me up. He sent me into this danger with my, with my brothers. Now take a look at source eight. They already hated him even before he goes into this situation. Why do they hate him? Because of the dream, dreams, right? What's the dreams? What's dream number one, which we have listed here in source eight? What's dream number one? But this is actually dream two. This is dream two. 
Right, in both dreams, he's ba- they're bowing to him, indicating that one day he will be the leader. So, you know, there's really reasons beyond just a coat, right, that they really hate him. And he could easily conclude, based on the way the father looked like, I'm not saying he did, but it looks maybe from, from Yosef's perspective, that Yosef was set up by his father. Now, here I want to say something to you. I would like to suggest, therefore, in our in source two, when it says, and Yosef said to his brothers, I am Yosef, is my father still alive? Ani Yosef ha'odavichai, I want to say that he's saying something entirely different. He's not really asking about whether the father is alive or not. He's saying something completely different. But we have to decode what that is. So what we're going to do now for the rest of the classes, we're going to decode what it is when he says, is my father still alive? But what's important to keep in mind, it's not referring in any way to inquiring about the father. It has an entirely different meaning. It's not about asking if the father's alive, because we've proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that he knew the father was alive, and he had reason not to care in any way, shape, or form. So I want to ask you another question. Look at source 9. And let's get a show of hands on this. While Yosef was the viceroy in Egypt, right, and living in Egypt, let's get a show of hands. How religious was Yosef? Now, I don't know what it means to be religious in biblical times, right? I don't know what it means to be like a, you know, a from Israelite. I don't really know what that means. But whatever it means, we don't have to be so exacting on this. Right? Whatever it means to be religious, who wants to, who, who would like to vote and say Yosef was a really religious Israelite in Egypt? Show of hands. Well, not one. Right? Let's see, let's 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 see if people are hedging their bets or they really want to give an answer. Okay? Who wants to say he was really disconnected, really assimilated? So we have a lot of non-voters here, right? Maybe this is why we have the election results we have. Okay. All right. So let's take a look at the sources and see what they say. Source 9. Who would like to read where it says, and Pharaoh named Joseph? Someone read for us, please. That's not source 9. Oh, Mm -hmm. it's a separate source. Yeah, it's mine. Okay, go ahead. Page 6. Someone read? I'll read. Go ahead. Are you want to read it? And Pharaoh named Yosef Sephat, Sephanat, Panea. Well, I don't like English, but... What does And he gave him Asnat, the daughter of Kotif. Asnat. Oh, I said Osnat. <laughs> Here it says Asnat. Osnat, the daughter of Potipharah, the governor of On, for a wife, and Yosef went forth over the land of Egypt. Right. So here, I think we're given certain interesting indications about Yosef's connection. Number one, his name is changed, right? Now, he doesn't change his name. Pharaoh changes his name. But there's an indication, my sense is, that in order for him to be the viceroy, you can't have a Jewish-sounding name. 
This is very reminiscent. Maybe people here remember this in their own time in America. Maybe people have read about this. Maybe people have heard stories about this. But it was a very common phenomenon earlier in American Jewish history for people to change last names or even first names to not be as Jewish sounding to make their way into occupations, to make their way into universities, to make their way into certain clubs, whatever it be. So this is kind of comparable, my sense is, with Yosef. Number two, who you, I, I'm, I'm more than happy to hear. Let's, let's hold off though on it and we'll, we'll, hear your, we'll hear your position at the end, okay? The other thing that's interesting here as well, right, is who he marries, who he marries, right? He marries someone clearly not an, of an, an Israelite, but more importantly, at least if we base it on Rashi, Right? It seems that this woman, Osnat, right, is the daughter of Potiphar. So now that he's so entrenched and accepted and assimilated into Egyptian society that he's able to marry the daughter of his former oppressor. Right? This is the person who buys him into slavery, and then who puts him into jail when he's made to think that Yosef is coming on to his um, wife, which is not accurate, but nonetheless, a reasonable conclusion. Now, the other thing that's interesting is the occupation here of this Potiphera. Now, earlier on, when we were introduced to Potiphar, we were told he was the Sar HaTabachim. Right, which means the minister of the butchers. It's not clear whether that means he was literally a butcher or maybe he was an executioner. Either way, he seems to have a somewhat important position in Egypt. So just the fact that he marries someone's daughter who's so entrenched in Egyptian society is significant. However, here, when he becomes Potifera, it's even more significant because now his occupation seems to change to being the priest of this idol-worshipping religion, right? Which is kind of interesting. It's translated here as governor of On, but in the Hebrew you can see the term is Kohen On. There is the priest of On the priest of an idol-worshipping religion. So that's kind of interesting as well. That would kind of indicate to me as well a sense of disconnection. Now take a look at line, uh, at source 11, Genesis 41, 51 to 52. This is what he names his sons. Someone read it for us. And Yosef named, would like to read? And Yosef named the firstborn Manasseh. For God had caused me to forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the second one? And the second one he named Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So this is interesting as well. God has caused me to forget all my toil and all of my father's house. Now he acknowledges God, but he seems to want to separate himself right from his father's home. Now this could just mean because he had problems in his father's home. However, another possible way to read it is he's separating himself from the tradition of his father. Line 52, the second child's name, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. In other words, I'm doing well in this place, the land of Egypt. Egypt is the place I want to be. Let's look at one more thought before I give you an answer, or at least a suggestion. Take a look at source 12. Right? And I gave you a picture here as well. 
Is this from way back, an original photo? This is, it's, it's, it was, they, they had Polaroids back then. Coat of color. Right. So take a look. Read, someone read for a source 12, Genesis 42, 8. Now, Yosef recognized. Who'd like to read? Someone read? Now, Yosef recognized. Go ahead. Now, Yosef recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Right. So why is it that Yosef is able to recognize them, but he can't recognize, they can't recognize him? Watch. They haven't changed. They look how? They look Israelitish, like Israelite right? Whereas, what does he look like? Egyptian. Egyptian. Right. The way I envision it, and the photo doesn't really fit my vision, right? I envision it that Yosef has that kind of Yule Brenner look going for him. You know, in, in, in the movie, you know, the Ten Commandments, right? He has like kind of that bald, shaved head, all kinds of eye makeup, and the little shank of hair coming out of his head. And he's going, you know, you know, remember Yul Brenner, Moses, Moses, who is this Moses? Etc. 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 Right? So, so well, we combine the Saturday Night Live routine by you know Billy Crystal, right? All right. So he doesn't look all that Jewish, whereas they look Jewish. They are wearing shepherd's robes. They have long beards. They have long hair. So let's come back now to our question. What does it mean, right, in source two? When it says, and Yosef said to his brothers, I am Yosef. Is my father still alive? Ani Yosef ha'od avichai. What I would like to suggest is the following. He sees his brothers, and he sees them looking very Jewish, and he confronts them himself, not them. He confronts himself with the question, am I still Jewish? I'm not Safnai Paneach. I'm Yosef. Is my father still alive? Is the tradition of my father, is the tradition of Judaism or Israelitism, whatever you want to call it, still alive within me? In the Torah, the father and the mother are the representation of Misorah, of tradition. So when he sees the brothers in this situation, he's reminded, is, he, is it too late? Is he still connected in some way to a framework of Judaism? But he has another question as well. He's not just curious if Judaism is alive within. He also wants to know, how is Judaism alive within? Because he sees the brothers, and their form of Judaism does not work for him. He's looking for a new form of Judaism. And in reality, Yosef has been looking for this his entire life. Let's take a much more careful look at the and, 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 and analyze dream number one, source 13. Genesis 37, line 6 to 7, Yosef's first dream. Who would like to read where it said, and he said to them? Please read, someone read for us. Source 13. Page 8. And he said to them, listen now to this dream which I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaths in the midst of the field, and behold, my sheath arose and also stood upright, and behold, your sheath encircled mine and bowed themselves to my sheath. Right, so the dream is ostensibly about what? Power. About leadership, right? That one day, right, Yosef will be the leader, and they will come to serve him, which inevitably does happen. But let me ask you this question, and someone, when I asked the question, what's the dream about, someone yelled out wheat. Who yelled out wheat? You're right on the money. It is about wheat. 
Because here's the thing. If this is a dream about leadership, of all the images to have a dream about leadership, why would it be sheaves of grain? I can think of all kinds of other images if I was going to have a dream about leadership. A scepter, a throne, a crown. Those would all be radically better imagery of leadership. Why is he dreaming about sheaves of grain? What's more is there's something strange about the fact that he's dreaming of sheaves of grain. What's strange about him dreaming about sheaves of grain? What's strange about it? There, he's a shepherd. He's a shepherd. Everyone he knows is a shepherd. The occupation of nice Jewish boys in Canaan at this time is being a shepherd. Where is it the occupation to be a farmer? Egypt. Egypt. Yosef is already dreaming about Egypt. He understands that the future of the world economic system is in Egypt. He also understands the world is evolving from being a sheep herding society to being an agrarian society, right? Now, this worries the brothers tremendously. Why does it worry the brothers tremendously? Which inherently is the more spiritual job? The shepherd or the farmer? The shepherd. The shepherd. Why? God's our shepherd. All right, that's true from an imagery, but, but give me a give, give me a very practical reason why it's the more the, the more Jewish profession. Tradition. No. Mm, a good point, but I'm thinking for something much more practical. The sheep pretty much take care of themselves. This gives the herder lots of time on their hands, and they have the opportunity to you know sit under the tree and meditate and philosophize, and do all kinds of spiritual things. Whereas a farmer, what's their day like? Dawn to dust. Plowing, reaping, sowing. I don't know what any of those things mean, because I'm <laughs> from New York, but I, I think that they're very involved in some way, shape, or form. It's a dawn to dusk idea. Now, this is what's fascinating. What is the most popular cover, the most thoroughly covered topic on a halakhic level on a Jewish legal level in the Torah. What topic on a Jewish legal level gets more psukim, more verses in the Torah than any other Jewish legal topic? Is it Shabbat? No, very little. Is it Kashrut? More, but not, not really so much. Is it prayer? Virtually nothing. Even sacrifices is not as big as the one I'm gonna tell you in a second. Is it, any, is it Jewish holidays? No. The most thoroughly covered Jewish legal topic in the entire Torah is agriculture. God understands, the Torah understands, that the world is evolving from a sheep herding society to an agrarian society. And the idea is to put Judaism in the context of our real lives. Not just that each of those laws has a particular relevance to what it's legislating, but to make the statement, bring Judaism into your real lives. Now, here's the challenge. We have the Torah of the farmer. We have to write the Torah of the lawyer, the doctor, the investment banker, and the homemaker. Now, take a look at the next source. Source 14. And he again dreamed another dream. Someone read that one for us. 
Genesis 37, 9, Yosef's second dream. Anyone? And he again dreamed another dream, and he related it to his brothers, and he said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream, and behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing themselves to me. Right, so here, it's even a little bit more arrogant, right? Because if it's now the, the moon, the sun, and the 11 stars, what is that... Who's that including before that it didn't include earlier with the sheaves of grain? Well, let's <laughs> let, let's hold off on the Taliban for just a second. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's let, let's 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 answer the more obvious question over there. All very good, but on a more basic level, who is this increase including that, it, that the other dream didn't the, include the over there? The, the mother and the father. So it's a little bit more arrogant. It's a little bit more arrogant, and I think the picture shows that very well, right? Because also, he's not metaphorical in this dream. The sun and the moon and the stars are bowing down directly to... Him, which is where I think you get your point about Avodah Zarah, which is a valuable point. But even beyond Avodah Zarah for a second, it's another dream about Egypt. He's dreaming either of astrology, astronomy, and once again it shows that Yosef is thinking about the future and that the future is in Egypt. And once again, just like in the first dream, this scares the brothers. So what I want to suggest here, and then I'd like to hear your reactions, and then we'll look, take a look at something else, is Yosef wants to be more connected on a Jewish level, whatever it means to be Jewish, to be an Israelite in this time, but his, his way of being Jewish is not going to be the same as the brothers. He's looking for a different kind of Judaism. He's looking for a Judaism that operates in the real, real world, and not just one that's ritualistically sequestered away, kind of polarized out of the real world. And I would like to suggest that this is the theme of the entire Torah, based on the fact that so much of the Torah does in fact deal with the laws of agriculture, to remind us that we shouldn't be engaged in a Judaism that operates in the real world. And to update this for our times today, we have to find ways to bring Judaism into our real life, not just into ritual aspects of Judaism, not to say that those things aren't important. Shabbat, holidays, prayer, kashrut, all those things are very significant. But the way we put Judaism into the context of our real lives, how Judaism operates not just in the synagogue, but in a gym, in a boardroom, in the bedroom, in all those locations of our lives, makes Judaism a radically more holistic experience. Just to conclude this segment, and then I want to hear your thoughts, not long ago I heard a story about a first-year law associate at a very large law firm who was Jewish, and he contacted this rabbi, and he said, you know, rabbi, there's something missing in my life. I have no spirituality in my life whatsoever. And the rabbi said to him, well, you know, you work all these hours as a first-year law associate at a big law firm. You have no Jewish learning, you know, going on. What you need to do is to commit yourself to studying Torah one hour a day, and then you'll have spirituality in your life. So by a show of hands, we're going to need another vote. Let's see how this one goes, right? Did the rabbi give this young man good advice or bad advice? 
Who says he gave him good advice? Okay, who says he gave bad advice? Okay, a lot of non-voters once again. So look, I'll tell you my take. I'm a rabbi, so I can't say it's ever bad advice to have anyone study Torah one hour a day. That's great advice. But at the end of the day, it's bad advice. Why? Because he devaluated most of this young man's waking hours. He said to him, there's no way you can find spirituality in the context of your real life. The only way to find spirituality is to separate it out of your life in that one hour of study of Torah a day. Now, if he said to him, study Torah one hour a day and then find ways for that Torah to infuse itself into your real life, into your occupation, into all the things you're doing, that would have been fantastic advice. But the way he gave him this advice bifurcated the spirituality with his real life. And that can't be the future of what we're doing with Jewish experiences in America. Let's pause now and let's hear people's reactions and thoughts, questions, anything that you'd like to share. Over here. So before you ask whether, jo uh, whether Joseph had lost his, uh, his uh, Israelite spirituality when he was, uh, when he was in Egypt, and, um, I didn't, couldn't think through this quickly enough, but my answer is no, I don't think he lost it at all. Um, I think this is demonstrated in his um, interactions with Potiphar's wife, where he kept his, uh, his ethics, and also when he interpreted Pharaoh's dream and uh, attributed it not to his own abilities, but this is something that simply God made the, um, uh, made the interpretation. I don't think he uh, missed that at all. I think the point that when he was asking about his father is that he came from a very toxic um, family. It was not only the father that was, I mean, the father, you know, kind of, it was as if he orchestrated it. But I don't think that there was any setup and an actor. <coughs> I think uh, Jacob was just a, you know, really, really poor manager of the family. And the toxicity uh, extended to the, uh, to the brothers also. And why would anybody want to go uh, with that? There's a, uh, a psychological analysis that in a toxic family, um, children will take on various um, uh, personas or various um, uh, ways of, uh, of uh, coping with the toxicity. Um, one of them is to become simply a lost child and go off and do something else and not have anything to do with the family. Many people consider this to be the healthiest of the, uh, the roles that a child can have in a toxic family, and that's exactly what he did. My take on when he was asking, um, is my father alive? He's asking about the family and the, the, uh, the social meal and the toxicity, and um, also looking to what are the possibilities here for intervening with this. Fascinating take. I like it a lot. I'm assuming you're a psychologist? No. You have, you have, you have some connections in this field? I'm a family physician. Okay, fine. So not, not so far off. Okay. Um, one, one thing for you to chew on. I think um, all the examples you gave, and I, I'd, be, I'd be curious if you could pick up a different example, of his connection to, again, being a spiritual Israelite, I'm not sure what the, the proper term is, they're all when he's being subjugated. None of those are experiences when he's empowered and when he becomes more entrenched into Egyptian society, when he's the viceroy, right? So the question is, 
I think it's easier, you know, in a way, to be connected Jewishly when you're in a society where you're not the dominant part of society, when you're the minority, when you're being subjugated. The question is, when you're empowered in that society, when you become part of the ruling class, how do you retain your Judaism in that context? Of course, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge, um, no question. What would he do? There's no sacrifices yet. I don't know. There's no prayer. Uh, he's not supposed to put on tefillin and wear a talis. Right. I, I, I think your question is a great one. Maybe what he would do is what he did. He establishes a path of maybe a new approach to Judaism, seeing Judaism in the context of the real world. And maybe he's the one who emboldens that path for the rest of us. Over there, and we'll come and, to you. And the opposite uh, way of looking at it. Number one, uh, Joseph, uh, when he administered uh, the uh, activities of the famine, did not uh, treat the um, the population of Egypt Excellent. very nicely. Excellent. Excellent. I would suggest that he had forgotten his Judaism, and when his brothers appeared, he he was conflictual with the Judaism, but. The brothers reawakened his Jewish feelings. Fantastic. Um, your, your first point in particular is a very important point not to gloss over, is that Yosef is basically cornering the market, you know, with you know all the resources of the society and being very particular about who gets what. And That's he was a, not generous. Not generous by any means. It's a very significant piece. By the way, at the end of the Yosef narrative, it points out also that he amasses all the land. Of that's Egypt my, for point. right for for Pharaoh. By the way, who's the only land he doesn't get his, his hands on? Torah tells us so. The Priestland, which is interesting. I don't want to talk about it now. It's going to take us in a different direction, but we have some time at the end. I think that's an important point. Why he can't get his hand on that land? Um, let's go one, two, three. Go ahead, and then four. Go ahead. Okay, so there's wording in source seven and eight that I I don't think I ever noticed before, and I let's don't. Let's take a look at source seven and eight. Everyone turn. Okay, where it says hold on, that... Hold on, hold on. Seven, go ahead. Okay, so it says, Aviv Shamar at the Devar, and then the English is also a little opaque. His father awaited the matter. Yeah. And I don't know quite what to make of that, but it's in both of those sources. And I'm wondering if it's ever used in, in respect to Joseph himself, because we really see that... His time, right? Both when it comes to the brothers, this whole routine of sending them back and again they come right. back, and then what he does to the Egyptians. Right. I, mean, I, I think I think the difference is the trajectory of where Yosef is at this point versus where he's at at the later point. In other words, he's a little wet behind the ears, it, you know, in this point in the story. Later on, he goes through what my grandfather would call the school of hard knocks. You know, he gets pushed around a little bit, and that changes him. I think it makes him a little savvier. But at this point, he's not really so good about self-protecting himself. Just the fact that he even tells his brothers about the dreams, brags about it, put aside his arrogance, it's, just, it's not going to be a good move for him. He's only setting himself up for failure. What's I think even more interesting is even if we don't buy into the notion, and I, I, I wouldn't suggest that we should, of Yaakov, of Jacob being in on the plot, Clearly, as you point out, Yaakov really put him in, a, in harm's way in the situation by not really looking out for um, a brother, a son, 
who is clearly going to be mistreated in this situation. But excellent points. Over I, I, here. I just don't know what to of the wording, but it seems to me that it's something he learned from his father yeah. by this time. I think you're right. Go ahead. Yeah, I have two points to make. Um, the first, uh, there's a recurrent theme that uh, Joseph is always asking about his father. What about his mother? Uh -huh. uh, uh, oh, why sure. didn't he consider asking for that? Oh, and then, uh, yeah, since dead. he was she's an dead. important yeah, person dead. in Egypt and he was the viceroy, right. and he, we hear that he could travel throughout Egypt, couldn't he go out of Egypt and, and look for his father to find out why did he have to wait years in between to hear from his brothers yeah. what his father well, was doing? With the mother, and then what about the mother? With the mother, I know that the, the Torah is sort of male dominant, <laughs> so right. that you don't Here, care about the women at all. Well, well, there's certainly a lot of misogyny in Torah. This is not an example. It's a more simple answer. Some people point out she's dead at this point, so there's really no opportunity. He knows that. Too. Over here, uh, <clears throat> you are saying. Uh, and you are blaming Joseph that for nine years he didn't check on his father. You think his father didn't know what is happening in Egypt? How did they know that there Excellent. is... Excellent. Excellent. Right. Uh, I think very much known two of them are playing games against Excellent. each other. Excellent. The other. The other thing is what Joseph did is exactly what, what is done. What is the first question that you are asked when you get an aliyah. What's your Hebrew name? Right. Joseph gave his children a Hebrew name. The rest of it he was not interested in. Right. Interesting and question whether they really were Hebrew names or we only think of them as Hebrew names today. But the same could be said about Moshe. At least, right. right. It's an interesting question. And the third so, thing is you have eliminated Binyamin. He's out of right. the picture. Right. I mean, it doesn't fit into our narrative exactly, but there's, there's significant points there. Please, over here. Well, you started with Ton and Pasim. Ton and Pasim is not only a special kind of a dress or whatever, but it's specifically, it identifies the wearer as a royal. Mm, excellent. If you remember the story of Tamar, mm. Tamar is dressed in Ton and Pasim. And she is the princess. Mm. So from the beginning, Jacob is making him a royal. And that's why in his he, he buys it into it. Mm. And he behaves like that. And in his dream, he sees everyone bowing to him just like the people bow to the king. Excellent. Fantastic. No. Other, uh, over here. Uh, well, oh, we'll come back later <laughs> if we have some more time. Sorry, go ahead. I'd like to go back to the character of Jacob. Yeah. Because he's a very weird character. He cheats his brother out of his birthright and his blessing, and then he runs away so he doesn't get killed, and then he gets cheated by his father-in-law, and then he cheats his father-in-law in return with the spotted uh, and uh, 
So is your point that when he sees everything with the brothers and Yosef, is it like the chickens coming home to roost from his own deceptions? A little bit of that, mm -hmm. and the fact that, you know, the way he favors or disfavors his children is a reflection of his past environment. Mm -hmm. Excellent. All right, one other point, and oh, I'm sorry, two other questions, and then we'll take one, uh, one last point. Uh, okay, so you were talking about how Joseph sees this shift in the way the Israelites slash Jews um, trajectory is going to go. But the trajectory so far, where in his time, is just basically covenant with God, right? We don't have these laws that he's no. thinking about bringing in. Although according to Rashi, there's no historical or to the Torah, yeah, so okay. we could but, we could be so much on Rashi. But go ahead. Um, so, so I'm trying to figure out what it is that he, you know, how he's going to change it so much. You know, right now they are shepherds, um, but you know he didn't uh, tell his brother about these dreams and have this arrogance about him. It seems like it could be possible, but he had the ideas. Maybe he just had them subconsciously, I don't know. Um, it could be that he could have been a leader once he became an adult, once he matured, yeah. without having to go through this whole rigmarole of being in Egypt yeah. to, um, to make this. Right, I think that's significant. Although, I don't know if anyone really ever becomes a leader or even finds their tough key, finds their destiny um, in the Torah without going through a rigmarole. Yeah. I would use a different word. I would use a journey, right? Um, I think in many ways, the characters we have in the Torah are very comparable to like journey literature, like the Odyssey or the Iliad. They need to go through what they can go through before they can achieve whatever is their destiny. So I think that's really part and parcel of it. And maybe to answer your other question, maybe that's his contribution. In other words, going through that journey, demonstrating in narrative form what it means to be involved in the real world, and the legislation that we see later on builds on that narrative and that paradigm that Yosef creates. There was another thought over here. Yes, please. Yeah. I'm just struggling with the idea of uh, Judaism or the Jewish identity that Joseph had in, in terms of its importance in contrast with just the fact that he was a member of a family. I mean, at what point in, in, in this discussion does the family suddenly become a religion or a, a huge movement that represents Judaism versus yeah. just being... Yeah, I, uh, I think your point is a significant one. The answer is well before. You know, the, the basic structure that we have of the Jewish people from the very beginning is mishpacha, is family. That's the whole form of the brit, of the covenant. It only evolves into something larger, into B'nai Yisrael, Am Yisrael, whatever you want to call it, a loose confederation of tribes. That's the trajectory that we see over the rest of the Torah and the rest of the Tanakh. But the building block of that is mishpacha, is family, is the bayit, is the home. And there's no question that Yosef doesn't get that at all, right? Um, Yosef really, that's something he has to learn. Perhaps being exposed, by the way, to slavery in ancient Egypt is a way he learns to value family from not valuing family. 
if you think about it, slavery is the utter breakdown of the family unit. It's a slave master who's in control of a family and not parents. So maybe by being exposed to the other breakdown of family, he would come to appreciate family. And we see an element of that in that he could have really you know, taken out his frustrations on the brothers. But there's a real moment of redemption for both the brothers and for Yosef in that moment where he reveals himself to them. You know, he lets them off the hook. You know, they kind of seem to reconcile. And maybe that's the healing of family that you're maybe referring to. Um, I want to do one other point, and, if we'll have, and I'll take anyone's questions after, but I know Ari told me we're very careful about ending on time. Just take a look at source 16, the very last source. So I'm going to skip the second to last source. But I bring this in as the conclusion apart, apart, uh, to kind of um, articulate a message of my general thesis. Again, for me, Yosef is the representation of bringing Judaism into the real world. How we play out Judaism in our real lives, not just in our ritualistic lives. So based on this, um, I have this idea that I'm trying to promulgate for Jewish day schools, for Hebrew schools, for any type of um, child education institution in the Jewish community. I believe the most valuable thing that we can teach our children in Judaism are the laws in Judaism surrounding lost objects. There's all kinds of laws in Judaism about what happens if you encounter a lost object. Your responsibility to return that lost object, or does it at some point become what's called hefker, ownerless, and you can take possession of that object. And the key psukim, the key lines in the Torah that are elaborated later on in the Mishnah are here in Sefer Devarim, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 22, lines 1 to 3. Now, why do I think this is the most important thing for children to learn in a Jewish day school or in a Hebrew school? I will tell you why. If you think about it, children live in a world of lost objects. They're constantly losing things, and they're constantly finding things. So if you can show children that Judaism has something to say about something that is truly relevant to them, then we can demonstrate the fact that Judaism is more than lighting Hanukkah candles, than getting gifts on Hanukkah. Not to say those things aren't lovely and important, but the only way I truly believe we're going to be successful with Jewish continuity is to impress upon children that Judaism operates in the real world. And the laws of lost objects is something that children on a regular basis come in contact with. So if they can be shown that Judaism has something very powerful to say about an ethical dilemma that confronts them regularly, I think that is one of our greatest shot of demonstrating to children that Judaism is real. And what I would suggest is after doing a thorough study of these laws, I would take children on a field trip to a lost and found. And you can see I have a photograph here of the lost and found at Grand Central. It's a major train station in Manhattan. And what you could do is the children could go and interview the people who run these lost and founds and compare and contrast the laws of the way a lost and found works 
at a train station, an airport, a bus station, some other public place, and the laws of Judaism. I think it would be a very interesting project for children in Hebrew schools and day schools. Thank you very much for having me. I'm happy to stay after and hear any of the applause departments.